What do you imagine when you think of Indigenous Americans? Do you immediately think of teepees and buckskin, feathers and dugout canoes? Do you imagine rural reservations with open land and few inhabitants? Or do you think about kids in jeans and t-shirts taking the L to school, families living in apartments in cities across the United States, or communities fighting city ordinances to be able to engage in traditional spiritual practices? Even if your first thought wasn't something out of The Last of the Mohicans, very few non-natives realize that the vast majority of indigenous people live in urban and suburban settings, not on reservations. Living off-reservation is a function of deliberate federal policies to make indigenous people, quote-unquote, more productive citizens. The U.S. government moved families off their land into cities with promises of a better standard of living and then provided no assistance to help those families achieve that dream. To be honest, I didn't know much about this until I started following the efforts of today's guest to raise awareness of these issues. I'm looking forward to learning a lot more today. So let's get started in the Politics Classroom, recorded on October 6th, Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Kate Floros, a clinical associate professor of political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. You can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Dr. Floros. You can also find the current lineup of UIC Radio DJs and podcasters at uicradio.org. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Angela Walden to the classroom today. Dr. Walden is the Assistant Vice Chancellor for Diversity Initiatives at UIC, where she is also the director of the Bridge to Faculty Scholars Program, and she is a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Psychology. Dr. Walden received her bachelor's degree in psychology at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and her master's and PhD in clinical community psychology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Walden is also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Dr. Angela Walden, welcome to the Politics Classroom. So glad to be here. And with that intro you gave, I think we're done. You said it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that was great. Okay, good. So I always ask guests how they decided to pursue the career path that they did. So what led you to pursue a dual PhD in clinical and community psychology? And then why did you decide to transition into diversity, equity, and engagement work? It's a really great question. So let me just start out and say that I don't remember meeting anyone with a PhD until I was in high school. So I grew up in Choctaw, Oklahoma, and uh, it wasn't until I had actually one of my teachers in high school had a PhD. And up until that point, I didn't even realize really that if you weren't a medical doctor, that you could get a degree that somebody would have to call you doctor. (laughs) And my sister and I were uh, the first in our family to go to college, Mm -hmm. and she's a couple years older, and she's so smart, and ended up pursuing a PhD in electrical engineering. And one day, 
uh, we were on the phone. I'm about two and a half years younger than her, and she had just started her PhD, and I was still an undergrad. And she said, "So, what are you going to get your PhD in?" And I thought, "Ah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to do that." Um, but you know, I had some really awesome mentors at Cal Poly who encouraged me to apply to grad school, and I ended up applying to UIUC. It was a really great program, and a very highly reputable, highly ranked department. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I really am truly a combined clinical and community psychologist. So the, the research world, which I have at this point largely sort of left behind me in terms of it's not part of what I do on a regular basis anymore. Okay. But that work really lives in community psychology, which is all about systems and all about thinking about how do we increase people's mental health by changing the context that surround them rather than focusing solely on changing those individuals or that family unit? Typically, clinical psychology is more focused on those individual or family level factors, which I was interested in. So, you know, I, I am a licensed clinical psychologist, and so I have, I have that experience of providing therapy services for individuals and families, but my research heart really lives in community. And so I came to UIC for my clinical psych internship, which sort of the last stop before you get your degree. It's almost like a, a residency, you know, you could okay. think about it that way. For me, I had always wanted to be at UIC because I had a friend who did the clinical internship here in psychiatry and loved it. And no small matter for me, there was a clinical psychologist on faculty who's Native American in our psychiatry department. Um, Amy West, who remains a very good friend and colleague, uh, she has since moved on to a different institution. She's at USC uh, in California now, but it was so, I hadn't had a Native mentor mm. at all up until that point. I hadn't worked with any psychologists, any professors who were Native American. And uh, I actually went back and occasionally I'll go back and read my, my essays that I wrote to get into grad school. And all over it is like, this is what I want to do. I want to work with Native communities. And I didn't really realize how much my world would open by having a Native mentor. And mm -hmm. so Amy really took me under her wing. And when I moved to Chicago, which is now about eight and a half years ago, really brought me out to meet community. And it's so important to have somebody do that. Uh, when you move to a new community, especially a native community, you you know you need folks that can kind of show you the ropes, so to speak, of of what community, how it's structured, and what are the different organizations in the city, and where do native people live, and how do we get together. So I, I just can't say enough about how important that was for me and how life changing it really was. And I, I I spend a lot of time sort of in this story talking about that because that is so critical to my trajectory and why I am in the position I'm in now in administration. So, you know, I, I moved into a faculty position here at UIC on the West Campus and had some experiences that really brought home to me the importance of not only for me having Native mentors, but also having Native colleagues. Okay. And I had a moment where I came to talk to Amalia Payares, who is my, who is now my boss, right. uh, our yes. vice chancellor for diversity, about this very issue. Like I was looking around, and at one point I was told by a colleague who, at the time, was the director of our Native American support program, that I was the only Native American faculty member at our institution. Mm. 
there, there are a couple of us now, <laughs> but, but that was just such a, I mean, it, it really, it really blew me away. You know, I, I had known that it was difficult to, I, I couldn't really find any other native faculty con- to connect with, but I think to have, to have somebody tell you that it's just like, whoa, so I wasn't, you know, it wasn't because I wasn't working hard enough to find these colleagues. It's that they aren't here. Yeah. That's not to say, of course, that, that we don't have folks on faculty who identify as indigenous, though they may not identify as United States Native American indigenous. And, and there's a lot of critical similarities in colonization experiences of indigenous peoples, broadly speaking. So I don't want to diminish the importance of that in colleagues. That certainly exists. And it, it, it's also the case that it just became really clear to me that I thought, you know, the skill set that I really think I, the things I think I'm good at and the things I like to do really seem to lend themselves to maybe building out at a system level policy and environment and climate that is welcoming for Native faculty. Because we know that when you have faculty members that reflect your student population, those students or native students at UIC will do better when they have, they'll be more successful at our institution when they have native faculty that they can look to and work with. But I think increasing the visibility of native people in Chicago is such a critical thing too, because we are the public institution, the, the R1 public institution of the city. We are an institution that prides itself in our outreach to community. And I think, I think we have a lot of reason to be proud of, of that outreach. And we live in a city that is home to, I think it's the third largest urban Native American community in the country. Wow. And so to have our public serving institution be as connected to that community in all of these ways, I think is really important. So I left it behind. I left that faculty life behind because I wanted to build something and of course, as you noted, my my position includes director of our Bridge to Faculty Scholars Program, which is a program that recruits underrepresented post-terminal degree scholars uh, for a two-year scholar training period with the goal of transitioning them to faculty after that time. So, you know, that, that certainly can include Native folks as scholars, uh, but... I guess what I'm saying is that clearly my role is multifaceted, even just by title. Sure. So Native American inclusion is not the only thing that, that I focus on, mm-hmm. but it is something that Amalia was supportive in me building out as part of my role. That's so critical to have somebody sitting in administration that can interface with Native communities and nations at the appropriate level of almost like a diplomacy, you know, uh, Native mm-hmm. communities. As, as um, one of your previous guests, Dr. Jackie Rand, talked about our, our sovereign entities. Yeah. And so I think when we think about building community relations, we want to meet them at that level. And so it's appropriate to have leadership and administration that serve as a point person. Great. Thank you so much. Um, you mentioned a, my, a previous guest, Dr. Jackie Rand, and one of the things that I spoke to her about was land acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if UIC itself has one, but you have one in the signature of your your email signature. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read it. And then there's a part of it especially that caught my attention. So this is the land acknowledgment statement of my guest, Dr. Angela Walden. 
In the spirit of healing, I acknowledge and honor the original peoples of the Chicagoland area, the Three Fires Confederacy, Potawatomi, Odawa, and Ojibwe nations, as well as other tribal nations that know this area as their ancestral homeland, including the Menominee, Ho-Chunk, Miami, Peoria, and Sac and Fox. This land is the current home to one of the largest urban Native American communities in the United States, and the city was a primary relocation site during the mid-20th century as a result of federal policies aimed to terminate tribal communities and sovereignty. We are still here. Native people are part of Chicago's past, present, and future. As part of a land-grant university system that occupies and benefits from the theft of indigenous lands, we have a responsibility to Native American community members at UIC, in Chicago, within the United States, and around the world. Acknowledgement requires action. Please consider the multitude of ways to translate knowledge and thoughts into active support for indigenous peoples and communities locally, nationally, and around the world. I commit to continue my work to build an inclusive and welcoming climate for Native and Indigenous peoples at UIC and building reciprocal relationships with tribal communities. So what really struck me about that, and it was part of my conversation with Dr. Rand, was the statement that acknowledgement requires action, Mm -hmm. that acknowledgement just by itself is not sufficient. So what type of action would you like to see my listeners, UIC as a university, other universities doing to support Indigenous communities? It's a really good question. So there are a couple things. One, I'm about to give a shameless plug for our website. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) And I must give credit here to a former colleague in our office who uh, recently transitioned to a role at a different institution, Michelle Mano. Uh, when Michelle was here, she and I collaborated and started thinking about all the questions that our office was getting about land acknowledgement. So there's been a, a real, and I think that's evident from your conversation with uh, Dr. Rand, you know, like there's a uptick in people's interest in land acknowledgements, in I would venture to say an uptick in interest of Native Americans as members of modern uh, society as well. And and I'm happy to see that. And we were getting the same questions kind of over and over again. And the questions, which I think make a lot of sense to me, so there's no uh, no judgment here in, in, in what I'm about to say, but the questions were sort of along the lines of, can you give me a land acknowledgement that I can put somewhere? Is there something that's already been written? You know, we want to write one. Can somebody just look at it and approve it? And I understand why those questions were happening, because I I think as your conversation with Dr. Rand, you know, again, illuminated, there's a lot of ways that people think about land acknowledgement. And one of the things that they sometimes don't think about as quickly is about the fact that acknowledgement is more than words on a page or words that get said, you know, that true acknowledgement is action. So Michelle and I decided that, you know, maybe we should have some sort of education campaign. And so I wrote the content for what became acknowledge is a verb, which lives on our website. And I'll link to it in the show notes. And we named it that because it is to acknowledge is to do a thing too. It's it's not just to sort of read a thing or have something present. You really need to be acting. So 
What I want people to also think about is that no matter where you're coming into your understanding or awareness of Native people, there's always, you know, at any entry point, at any level, at any level of resources that one has, you can do something, even if it's sort of seeking out information. And there's lots of it, you know, available online that's very good, high quality, well-made, very approachable information that Native people themselves have put together about what land acknowledgments mean, that they've put together about what action means in all kinds of different ways. So there are people who, for example, are focused on activism related to land and caring for land and environment, and they'll have some different options or ideas for what action means in that sense. Mm -hmm. For me, I think representation is one of the biggest issues. To me, it's what I always come back to. How are Native people understood in kind of mainstream society? How do people, what do people think about when they think about a Native person? So that has so much bearing on the policies that get enacted, how Native people continue to be seen or not in public spaces. So I would say for action, since I feel like representation is so huge, I would suggest that people try to consume media that's created by Native people. And now I think there's some really good, easy, easy to find things. Like, for example, the Hulu show Reservation Dogs. Mm -hmm. Reservation Dogs, that was created by Indigenous people. Sterling Harjo is from Oklahoma, is a Native American person. Uh, The writer's room, I understand, is if not exclusively majority native people mm-hmm. and those actors are native and indigenous people. There's so much about that uh, show that I think is really approachable and funny and heart wrenching. I mean, it's just so approachable for anyone from anywhere. And I think for me as somebody who grew up in Oklahoma there's a lot of things that happen that's kind of like, okay, that's an inside. That's an inside reference, if you know, <laughs> you know. But it is also something that I think helps present Native people as three-dimensional human people who live in society today. So that's one. I, I would also say there are books that are out there that are written, cover all kinds of topics. If you want to think about what it means that people are taking DNA tests and thinking about Native ancestry, if something happens to pop up on there, what does that mean? And what are the what are the considerations there? Kim Tallbear is another person that is somebody that comes to mind that's written some very approachable pieces on that topic, has given a lot of interviews and media about that. You know, I'm I'm just throwing a couple things out there, but there's really no shortage if you're if you do a little bit of looking to find there's there's no shortage of native people who have just put out in a variety of places podcasts television you know entertainment or nonfiction and fiction writing you can find things written by native people that i think will give anyone a sense of a different view than what still remains kind of the most predominant set of portrayals that place us in the past and make us noble savages or right um, you know, un, un, uncivilized, uh, put in quotes. Right. So you can start there. Yeah, it, all the way up to things like, so for example, here in Chicago, we have about a dozen or so Native American organizations, and they all have a public presence. They have events that are open to the public. Our community center, the American Indian Center, is one of the oldest in the United States. 
and um, they put on an annual powwow. Oh, wow. It's held every year and it's open to the public. They also do events, you know, all throughout the year that anyone can come to. The other thing I'll say for local folks is the Field Museum just reopened their Native American Hall and it has been completely redesigned in collaboration with a lot of different stakeholders and tribes and tribal members. And if you walk into that exhibit now, you would see that Native people exist right now. And you would also have a better understanding of how Native people connect to their tribal culture and their tribal and family history, too. So, you know, I think it's just sort of like putting yourself in those spaces, whether it's in your own home with a book in front of you or it's out in the world where you can be around things that are created by Native people. I think that's the biggest thing to me is really working hard to undo those stereotypes that remain so prevalent in people's minds that are just inaccurate. (laughs) Yeah. So when, when you, in your psychology work, I understand you did a lot with the psychology of invisibility. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? So first I should clarify that I, I had nothing to do with disseminating anything about the psychology of invisibility in Native people. But what I pull from often in the education that I've been giving over the years, so I started in grad school uh, at UIUC giving presentations to help make the connection for folks on campus about why representation matters. Why does it matter that Native people continue to be represented in these very stereotypical and historical ways. And I happened to come across this book chapter by Stephanie Freiberg and Sarah Townsend called The Psychology of Invisibility. And this book chapter appeared in a, in a book called Commemorating Brown, The Social Psychology of Racism and Discrimination. This chapter really gives such a great framing for why representation matters and why representation matters in the examples that they walk through in that chapter for Native people. So they talk about two kinds of invisibility, and I really love that frame. So they talk about uh, one kind of invisibility that's really like misrepresentation. So your identity group is portrayed in a very stereotypical or inaccurate way. Mm-hmm. And absolute invisibility on you know is a second kind of invisibility and that is where your group is absent from a space or from a portrayal or from being present and that in and of itself is a message about your group. So, you know, when you're misrepresented and I always try to give this example locally like if you thought about being a tourist in Chicago, you'd probably go to Michigan Avenue and walk around There's a lot of public monuments in the city that portray Native people. There's actually a recent report that came out about some of those public monuments from the city that I would encourage people to look at because that that report details feedback solicited from the Native American community here about how they feel about those representations. And the spoiler is they don't like them (laughs) because they're inaccurate and harmful in their view. But Nevertheless, if you, if you were kind of visiting Chicago for the first time, you'd see a lot of things that portray Native people. And unless you're going to the Field Museum to see their new Native American Hall exhibit, you're probably going to see things that are like buckskin, feathers, you know, headdresses, and people that look like they probably didn't exist beyond the mid-1800s. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's a misrepresentation that perpetuates the idea that Native people don't live here because they're all of the past. And it's a good thing they don't live here because they were all savages. And absolute invisibility, though, is sort of like the experience of being in an academic setting when there are no other Native people there. (laughs) You know, like that, that sends a message in and of itself about who belongs there. So that's why I, you know, I can connect that back to, again, my experience of, you know, like I, I went for about a decade and I was almost done. I was like on my way out the door, almost with my degree in my hand before I had a mentor who was a Native person. And that sends you the message about who belongs in those kinds of spaces. Yeah. So I am so grateful uh, to Stephanie Freiberg and to Sarah Townsend for that work, because I think having that lens and being able to help people understand what these kinds of invisibility, you know, situations are and the impact that they can have is very critical to helping people understand why it's important that we are inclusive of Native people. Let's take a break. This is Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. Welcome back to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and I'm joined in the classroom today by Dr. Angela Walden, Assistant Vice Chancellor of Diversity Initiatives at UIC. Given your your land acknowledgement statement and the fact that the land in which we sit in Chicago had been the homeland of different groups, I looked up how they were no longer on this land, right? And I came up with two different treaties of Chicago where the groups ceded land around Lake Michigan in return for money and land in territory west of the Mississippi. And I think when people hear that, like, oh, there was a treaty, they ceded their land, like this is a fair deal. I also have been recently listening to the This Land podcast about how it was that the the Cherokee ended up on the Trail of Tears in the 1830s. And, you know, the talk about like this was not treaties among political equals, right? That that there were very severe consequences if indigenous groups did not agree to quote unquote cede their land. So I don't want to spend too much time on this, but can you talk a little bit about that and ab- about how fair or unfair <laughs> these uh, these treaties ended up being? Yeah, knowing a little bit about my own, for example, tribal nations history, and, and also from, you know, historians and other folks that I know who are experts in these areas, I think it's pretty objective to say that, no, these are not, this was not, these were not agreements, and I air quote that, that were made on equal footing. Right. You know, it's it's really not a fair and square deal when there's not the ability to refuse that without risking, I would say, total annihilation of your people. Yeah. I can't even imagine what it must have been like for uh, my Cherokee ancestors to have to make those kinds of decisions, like how difficult that would be. So no, I I think it's pretty well established that these were not on equal footing by any stretch of the imagination. And that even the sort of like, the, the payments 
again, sort of in air quotes, uh, the tribal nations received for those, that those are, I think, if people knew what those payments were, it would be clear that those were not fair. And my understanding, of course, and, and I know Dr. Rand talked about this, is that even if there was an exchange of like, okay, here is some, here are some resources that the federal government handed over to tribal nations, that those resources were well below fair value for what they were taking in return. And even a lot of the promised money was never delivered. The federal government would say like, okay, and when everybody, so we'll give you a little bit of money now. And when everybody, you know, gets across the Mississippi, we'll give you more money. And then the more money never came. Well, I think what, so if I thought about kind of a example that is pretty recent okay. that people might find interesting. I mean, think about it this way too. So there was a case that was decided by the Supreme Court uh, within the last couple of years, the McGirt decision, if people want to go look that up. And it pertains to the state of Oklahoma and the tribal land in Oklahoma. So when I was growing up, you know, Cherokee Nation, uh, it was always referred to as like tribal jurisdiction land. So there was no like recognized at the state level, like reservation land in Oklahoma, um, despite the fact that there are, I don't know, there's like 30 something tribes, I think, in the state. And it took a very recent Supreme Court case to shed light on the fact that we have treaties in existence that say that that land in Oklahoma that was not recognized as reservation land is in fact tribal reservation land. But that was something that just was not upheld by the state government. And so the McGirt decision reified that, yes, it's true, like just because someone has been ignoring (laughs) that treaty doesn't mean that that treaty doesn't exist or doesn't mean that those series of treaties don't exist. So, yeah, I I would say that there are lots of, you know, examples that one could point to where even when there was a treaty that resulted in, you know, something happening and Native people moving, being forcibly removed um, (laughs) onto a different space of land, that it's not like when they got there that it was like, okay, you know, like, uh, that there were still instances um, just rampant instances where those agreements were still not upheld, even in those situations. So, you know, you don't have to be a tribal law scholar or historian to to be able to see just even in the things that are happening in the current time, yeah. that there's lots of evidence that no, those agreements were not fair and, and they weren't even upheld. So it seems like the U.S. government has been very interested in assimilating uh, Native people into the larger white community. And I was reading some of the articles that are linked on your Acknowledges a Verb website. And one section, one quote uh, really jumped out to me. So this is by Max Nesterak from Minnesota Public Radio in a story called Uprooted. And he said, At the time, well, so he's talking about the 1950s and the removal to the cities, which I want to talk about in more detail in a minute. But he said, um, so in the 50s, blackness was defined according to the one drop rule. But white America believed Indianness could be washed away in just a few generations through intermarriage with whites. This contradictory logic was self-serving for white Americans. 
more Black Americans meant more workers to exploit. Fewer Native Americans meant more land to take. And there were multiple efforts through the years to facilitate this assimilation and to disengage people from their land. And one of them was the Indian boarding schools around the turn of the last century. And, you know, so children were kind of forcibly removed from their homes and sent to these boarding schools where they were severely punished for speaking tribal languages. Their hair was cut. They had to speak English. And a lot of children died at these boarding schools. And that was not really ever acknowledged. Families, you know, never heard what happened to their children. Do you know how long that boarding school era lasted? I don't know exact time frames off the top okay. of my head, but I think when one hears about this, the boarding school generation, I think, you know, given everything that we've talked about with representation, my guess is that most people sort of imagine that this happened a really long time ago. But I, I gather that most people would be shocked to hear if they are not already aware that there are people who are alive today who are part of those boarding school generations. The misperception that persists about Native people is that, oh, these things happened in the past, Native people are in the past, like this is all a long time ago. And no, it's not. You know, this is, there are people who, so for example, I know someone who is in their 70s whose parents were both taken and put in boarding schools. But there are people younger than that who themselves were taken and put in boarding schools. So, you know, you're you're not talking about some sort of like untangible, distant ancestor here. Right. You're talking about people who are still living and who can remember being taken from their families. So I, I just want to drive home the point that this is not something that is over and done with and, and oh, it just happened so long ago and there's nobody around that can remember that. That, is, that, that would be a, a really dangerous misperception, I think, for people to have. And the effects of that are just devastating. Mm -hmm. I mean, the disruption of family units, the disconnection between children and their parents, their grandparents, but also their language, their culture, community. So much about a culture gets communicated by language. Yeah. You know, and, and so to have that taken from you and to be to be very brutally punished for any sort of like inkling that you might be hanging on to or staying connected to your culture in those settings. Like, I mean, children were like beaten. Yeah. Children were assaulted. There are stories of, of sexual assault. Yeah. And then of course, like not even to mention the hundreds of graves. And I'm not talking like hundreds in total. I'm talking like there are individual schools <laughs> that have, you know, graves of children, native children up there in the triple digits. Yeah. So to think about I just, I think it, people have a hard time kind of connecting with that if they don't 
it's just unimaginable, I think, for most people to think about that as, as something that their parent or grandparent may have had to go through. But that happened. And that has lasting effects on Native communities and people. What I've always thought was a really American thing to do was that children were beaten for speaking their language, and yet it was Native language that protected the codes during World War II, Mm -hmm. right? That it was uh, Navajo and other groups whose language formed the basis of codes that the Japanese couldn't crack, which allowed the United States to prevail in the Pacific War. Mm-hmm. And these very same people had been beaten for for speaking in their own language, and yet that language is what saved the day in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And the fact that more people don't know about that is shameful, I think. Both not knowing about the boarding school, but also then not knowing the role that those Indigenous folks played in helping win the war. That is something that I think people don't realize. I'm, I'm going to take us on a, on a wide turn here okay. and talk about, talk about love for a second. Oh, wow. So I, I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to be, to be around a bunch of uh, Native American colleagues. There's a small conference that happens in Colorado every year and it's just, it really fills my professional and personal cup. Uh, but there is somebody, uh, Myra Parker, who is faculty at the University of Washington, gave a talk about some of the work that she's doing. And she talked about language and part of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to kind of take us in this direction of love because I also think that, it, you know, given how Native people are portrayed... Uh, most commonly, I don't think we think about, you know, Native families as ha- as being sources of such love and support and strength mm. for Native kids. And so it, it, I think it illustrates in, in a roundabout way sort of how how devastating it is that that structure was so disrupted and continues to be so disrupted by settler colonialism. But I want to say that these kinship relationships are incredibly important. And some of that does get communicated very uh, clearly through language. So Myra was talk. She put this slide up during her talk. She was talking about, um, Cord- I think, Cordelaine language, and as an illustration, told us, okay, you know, you you have four grandparents, right? And if you're in this community, each of these four people call you a different thing based on who they are. So essentially, your you know maternal grandmother has a, has a name for you that's different from your, all the other three grandparents, maternal or paternal. And the version of what they call you translates sort of into you precious, beautiful, cute little version of a mini me. (laughs) So, so like the best way I can think to describe it is like if my maternal grandmother would have called me sort of like little tiny cute you know her name was Pauline little tiny cute sweet mini Pauline me you know and and um I bring this up because I think that communicates so much in just the one name that someone might call you it communicates their intention about their responsibility to you that if you're my mini me um, and you're my cute mini me. First of all, I, I, it's my job to love you, you know, because you're just this precious thing that's built into how I call you. But also that it's my job to transfer to you 
the things that I know and the lessons that I've learned and the, and the information that I carry. But it also recognizes that I see you as being a future version of me. You're going to be that elder someday. And you are going to take on the responsibility of, of all your cute little mini yous. And you're going to do the same thing. You know, so I, I think about that. And it actually makes it makes to me some of the some of the thoughts I have about, you know, what that must be like to disrupt this family system. Like it's all the more devastating in some ways when you think about that. But um, and to and if think about being a child in that community and you lose that language, not only did you lose that word for what's grandchild, but you lost that entire meaning for what that cultural teaching is. Yeah. And I wanted to also talk about, uh, there's a case that's going to be argued in front of the Supreme Court this term on the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act, Mm -hmm. ICWA. And my understanding of why this act was passed in the first place, it's it's a law from 1978. And what it does is it gives adoption preferences to keep indigenous children within their tribal community. Because of this breakdown of the family through all these policies, Native children were being removed from their homes by social workers and child protective services or whoever that may be, or their parents died, and they were being placed into white homes when there were people uh, from their tribe who were willing to take them. And so this law was passed, if my understanding is correct, to say if there is someone in the community who is willing and able to care for this child, that they should stay within their community rather than being adopted out. And there's a challenge to that law saying it's discriminatory that like a white person can't adopt an indigenous person, but could adopt everybody else. And it has to do more with the political status of indigenous folks rather than racial. And there's it's, it's more complicated than I want to get into at this point. But clearly, this continues to be a problem that there are many children who at least the state believes would be better off in other homes and communities trying to keep their children with them. Like how widespread is this? To your knowledge. So what I would offer to listeners who are wondering, like, why is it, why are uh, Native people so concerned with the Indian Child Welfare Act or ICWA? I think everything that we've talked about it to, you know, to this point in the conversation about representation, about the history not so long ago, very recent of Native people being taken from their communities and homes and being forced to erase their culture. You know, I think all of those things, again, are not things that are too far behind us. (laughs) And um, there are ways in which Native people's rights to practice their culture are still challenged. So. You know, I even think about stories about Native people having their hair cut or, or things like that. Or, uh, you know, it, I think it's just there's still an ongoing struggle for Native folks to be permitted by mainstream society to live by their cultural beliefs and, and to practice their culture 
they're different cultures because there's hundreds of Native American tribes. And and so I I don't want to perpetuate the stereotype that we're a monolith because we're not. Um, But, you know, those kinds of struggles are ongoing. And so, you know, I think the conversation and the, and the, the case before the Supreme Court about ICWA does have, as I understand it, the potential to have extremely impactful ramifications related to tribal sovereignty, that is, tribes' ability to govern themselves, which is, again, you know, part of their agreements with the federal government. Yeah. And so... ICWA ties into that very directly and deeply. I will say if folks are interested, certainly the podcast, This Land, I think does a really, really thorough deep dive into some of the aspects that are relevant related to tribal sovereignty and ICWA. Um, But there have been lots of other people also, I think, who have written about, about this issue from a Native perspective. And I do think that it is a really important case in terms of how it affects, how it has the potential to affect Native communities and peoples. I I have been a little bit surprised because I've been listening to podcasts here and there that were talking about kind of what's coming up on the docket. And I've heard a couple of different mainstream podcast episodes where they talk about that. And they're like, we're going to talk about the three most important cases. And it was not mentioned at all Mm. (laughs) in any of these podcasts. So you know, I, I do recognize that it's probably something that's not totally on the minds of the average person in the United States, but it is, it's tremendously important as a case. Sure. And that as an act in and of itself, you know, I think it has really particular ramifications for tribal sovereignty and its continuation. Yeah. So between the main boarding school period and ICWA, we have the Indian Relocation Acts of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And it was moving folks from uh, reservations into cities and towns with the promise of better standard of living, but without, other than a bus ticket to the city, not much support for when people arrived. Mm-hmm. And there were devastating effects on, you know, families who who struggled through this that continue to this day, including poverty, mental health issues, etc. And this is what has led to the vast majority of Indigenous people living in cities and towns rather than on, on reservations. So was this just another effort at assimilation or was the government really just trying to pry land away from tribes? How do you see these acts in the broader relationship between the U.S. government and various tribes? Yeah, so scholars in this area, I think, have really talked about this as a set of policies that had a had a purpose of eliminating tribes, you know, sort of eliminating tribal sovereignty to disestablish tribal nations mm-hmm. formally. What I think is interesting, so, you know, Chicago was one of those primary sites for relocation. And there have been a number of different kinds of books and stories that have been written about not just Chicago and relocation. There's a a book that was written some time ago called Indian Metropolis that uh, is about Chicago and talks a lot about relocation. I think the history, that book goes up to about the 1970s, I think. But for folks who are interested in kind of what that meant for, you know, an individual Indian country today, which is a popular news media 
outlet uh, pops up on my Facebook feed all the time. I read it a lot. It's, it talks a lot. It, I mean, it's a, it's news about what's happening in Native communities and with Native okay. people. They just ran a story in September about a community elder in this community named Susan Power. And that might be an interesting read for your listeners because it's very approachable. It's relatively brief because it's in a news outlet. And Susan's story is kind of interesting because she did not come to Chicago as part of the Relocation Act. So there were, you know, there have always been Native people living everywhere. It's just certainly like in the numbers of Native people that were moved to or relocated to or sort of lured with promise of economic stability to cities, I do think, you know, changed the landscape, certainly, of where Native people live and what it means to be a Native person, what the community looks like in a city. But Susan actually came to Chicago about a decade before the Relocation Act really came into play. But still, there's the common experience of being a Native person and trying to, like, find your way in a place that you don't know people in, your family's not here, my understanding of relocation too is that, you know, it's not going to, they're not, the interest in relocating native people is probably going to be like people who are young and can, you know, have, have a lot of work time ahead of them. Right. And so this also resulted in dislocation between, you know, families, like, uh, you know, if you're a young person and you're moving to a city, you're probably not moving your, your elders and your family with you. Right. And so that makes it really hard. That makes it hard because, uh, you know, just like any person who moves to a city and doesn't know anybody, you yeah. move by yourself. Like, that's a difficult experience objectively. Um, you have to find your community and you have to sort of build that. And, and the safety net for you economically is much more thin if it even exists. So whatever the the official or unofficial intent was, my understanding is that it was to to abolish tribal sovereignty. What it ended up doing is it it continued that sort of uh, disconnection between people and their communities, their home communities, and disconnection between individuals and their families and their immediate and extended, which also has bearing on connection to culture and things like that. What I will say is that I think, you know, what's amazing to me and that I think is to be really to shed a light on is that Native people have continued to survive and even thrive in the context of, you know, in the face of numerous attempts to eliminate Native people as a people. And, you know, we, we are still here, like, you know, Chicago remains one of the largest urban Native communities. We have, I don't know exactly how many tribes are represented. I've seen a couple different numbers I think it's somewhere around 150 or something like that tribal nations represented by the native people in the city. And it's a, it's a really interesting thing to then build a community as a diverse set of, you know, as I said earlier, where there's a lot of different cultures represented by native communities. And then to have a space in an urban community where so many different native communities and cultures come together to form some kind of, you know, Native community here is, I think it should be understood that Native people have a tremendous amount of strength and a tremendous amount of ability to continue moving forward. And it's still the case that the support and 
um, representation and all of those things are still required and in you know need to be in place for native communities to really increase their capacity to do things like uh, be seen as part of mainstream society and continue to live by their culture and and to be able to practice that and um, so I'm not saying you know I it's a balance native people are people with great strength and uh, native communities have persisted for hundreds of years and I think that's something we really need to recognize and that's something that I think a lot of native people feel proud of Mm -hmm. But it's also the case that, you know, we have done that in the face of tremendous obstacles. And those obstacles did not go away just because we don't live in, you know, the 1800s anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they just look a little different. Yeah. I was wondering then what, I mean, and again, it's going to be different given the the sheer diversity of the number of, of tribes that exist. But on average, what is the relationship today? between the folks who relocated to the city and their descendants with the tribal reservations that they left behind? Is there a lot of back and forth between them? Or is it like kind of... Mm, so basically, yeah. what, what, <laughs> what, what is the relationship between those who left and those who remained? And how strong is that? And are there efforts to keep those relationships intact? So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep it to two things. Okay. One is my my sample of one me, okay. um, which is you know I'm I'm not from Chicago, and so I like uh, many people who are part of the community have come to Chicago not being from here, and certainly Cherokee Nation does not have any ancestral ties, as far as I'm aware. You know, to this region, we're a southeast yeah. tribe, and so for me. I have, you know, Cherokee Nation as a community, uh, and what I love about Cherokee Nation is that in the face of, you know, the pandemic, they really did a lot to stay connected to not just tribal community members that live locally um, in the northeastern corner of Oklahoma, but also to reach out and make lots of things available virtually to people who live outside of our tribal land. And so... Uh, you know, I can take I can take language classes. I can you know tune in regularly to presentations and talks and things like that that are happening in my community that are put on by my community uh, that are made accessible to anyone anywhere. I can visit also, which I do uh, sometimes. Go back to Tahlequah. So we just uh, had our national holiday celebration was in early September and I was able to go to that, which is the first time I've been able to, to go to that really as an, as an adult. And so, you know, I'm able to maintain that tie uh, to Cherokee Nation. In part, I think it's helpful because I grew up in Oklahoma, but I, I grew up like two and a half hours away from okay. Cherokee Nation territory, really. But, um, you know, and then I have a community here and that community has taught me so much because, you know, I... I will go to a community event and sometimes something happens and I'm like, I don't even know what that was. Like, what was that? And, you know, or, you know, I've never seen this object or I've never heard about someone utilizing this material in this way or like this dish that we are eating now, never had it, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I think that's such a wonderful thing, you know, that I have, I feel 
pretty lucky actually, you know, that I have connection to, to this community that, you know, I am not from, but I am part of and to a tribal community, you know, in Oklahoma. And so I imagine that there's, there are lots of other people in the community that probably feel that way too. And there are lots of people in Chicago who are native who were born and raised in Chicago. And so like, this is their community, this very diverse native community is kind of their home community. From a formalized perspective, there are some tribal nations that have created satellite offices in Chicago. So, for example, the Ho-Chunk Nation had a, has a satellite office in Chicago. I think Menominee has a community center, and there's a newer one that opened up that I am, I am forgetting the tribe um, now, but this one, this one is pretty new, but it's a tribe that I think is based in either Louisiana or Mississippi. So, you know, I think tribes too are, are doing that work to have a greater reach to folks who are part of that tribal community that live in other places too. And certainly, you know, beyond that, I know some people who live in Chicago, but also travel back and forth to their tribal communities that are in like Wisconsin or Minnesota or something that's like a little bit more driving distance. So I think people connect in all kinds of ways. And I, again, you know, like I just say, I love that, that I have the ability to not only connect with Cherokee Nation and have access to all of those tools and, and resources that I mentioned, but that I consider myself extremely lucky that like I get to live in this like super diverse community that is doing all kinds of really awesome things. And um, I have really interesting conversations with colleagues at different universities who are Native American to talk about like, what does it mean for, you know, a university to build these relationships? Or, you know, how do we as people who have this particular background that we might have in academia and training, like how can we be useful to our community with our skill set and knowledge? Okay, fantastic. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I really appreciate the time uh, that you've taken. Dr. Angela Walden, thank you for joining me in the politics classroom today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I had a great time. Great. Dr. Angela Walden is the Assistant Vice Chancellor for Diversity Initiatives at UIC. You've been listening to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Dr. Floros. If you're interested in more information about the topics covered in today's episode, please check out the bookshelf section of the podcast website at thepoliticsclassroom.org. I've been a little behind in getting the bookshelf pages up for each of my recent interviews. I'm hoping to correct that in the weeks to come. I'm trying to get the word out about the podcast, so if you're so inclined, please highly rate and review the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I would really appreciate if you would do that. And again, you could reach me on Twitter at Dr. Floros if you have any suggestions or questions that I can ask future guests. This is Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom. That's all I've got for this week. Class dismissed. Class dismissed.